Welcome to Florida. That is not the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. That is the voice of Cynthia Barnett, a former Welcome to Florida guest. Episode 55 was all about her book, uh, The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. Cynthia is a fellow environmental journalist along with Craig Pittman. She also teaches environmental journalism at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications. And when we had Cynthia on the podcast back earlier in the summer of 2021, she came up with this idea to turn the tables on Craig when Craig's new book, The State You're In, was released this fall. And it has now been released. And here you are, Cynthia, back with us, thankfully. Here I am. And I'm really excited to turn the tables on Craig Pittman. Looking forward to our interview. When did you meet Craig? Oh my gosh, Chad, I'm not even sure I can say. I'm sure I've known him for at least 20 years, uh, probably from the early 90s when we worked in the same building when I was at Florida Trend on the on the top floor of what is now the Tampa Bay Times building, and, and he was the environmental reporter. So I, I admired his work for a long time. I got to know him as a fellow journalist, and then... Um, I always loved his books, and I also often have him come speak to my journalism classes at the University of Florida because he's just so terrifically inspirational to the to the young journalists. Mm-hmm. You have an advanced copy of the book. In fact, you uh, wrote a, a recommendation for uh, the cover of the book. What will people experience when they read Craig Pittman's new book, The State You're In? Well, I'm, and maybe I should just uh, read my endorsement, or this, this, this is what we book authors call a blurb. And in, in my case, I have to say it, it is absolutely accurate and from the heart. I say, spanning 30 years of extraordinary reporting, the state you're in is a celebration of Florida and its most versatile writer. Pee your pants funny in one chapter and utterly humane in the next. Craig Pittman is Florida's own Mark Twain. And Chad, I have to say that the pee your pants funny came because I was I was reading the book and I was starting to laugh so hard I just had to run to the bathroom so I didn't pee my pants because it was it was hilarious. You know, oh. it's just it's just hilarious. But it's also humane. We'll trust that you made it and uh, don't require any more details (laughs) on that one. The State You're In is the new book. You can find it all across Florida in your local independent bookstore or anywhere online. Cynthia Barnett and myself now have the pleasure of talking to Craig all about the new book, The State You're In. Well, Craig, first I want to congratulate you on this wonderful new book, The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. Thank you. You've really captured the weird and you celebrate the wonderful, including a great love story involving the most (laughs) tattooed woman in the world, a deep dive into the professional mermaid industry and a battle between residents of a nudist resort and the U.S. Postal Service. So I loved it. It is classic Craig Pittman, classic (laughs) Florida. And I'm really excited to turn the tables on you today. (laughs) I bet there are lots of Florida 
politicians who just wish they could be in my seat and turn the tables <laughs> on But I wanted, I wanted to start by asking you about the absolutely wonderful and hilarious cover illustration for listeners who haven't for listeners who haven't seen the jacket yet uh the cover illustration is a caricature of craig standing on our dangling peninsula with mouse ears and his press pass he's got an alligator in his right hand and he has a book in his other hand and i was looking closely at that book thinking it would be one of his own but the book you're cradling in your left hand is John D. McDonald's Condominium. Yes. And so I just wanted to ask, could you tell us about that detail? And of all the Florida books you've read and felt inspired by, why did you choose that one for the cover? The cover is, is the work of a very gifted artist uh, and talented artist, Andy Marlette, who is the editorial cartoonist for my hometown paper, the Pensacola News Journal. I went up to Pensacola to do a, a book appearance. It's something called the Foo Foo Festival, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I just love saying the, the name. And Andy, uh, the, they, the news journal did a little promo about it, and Andy drew a caricature of me, and it was somewhat like this. And so um, when it came time to discuss the cover, I suggested to the publisher, hey, why don't we get Andy to adapt his his drawing of me into the cover for the book? And, and Andy was game to do it, and the publishers thought it was a great idea. It turns out they were big fans of Andy's work too. And so uh, that's what we came up with. The uh, The original version, I was holding a copy of Oh, Florida. Uh, oh, my, okay. My New York Times bestseller. And so for this one, I told Andy, I said, let's make that John D. McDonald's condominium because there's a profile of John D. McDonald in the book. Um, yes. Talking about his, his environmental activism. His, he was a very early environmental activist in Florida. And um, and a lot of his environmental messages, he kind of slipped in sideways in his books. One of his early novels, uh, in fact, A Flash of Green, uh, has been hailed as the first environmental novel and came out in 1962, the same year as Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. It sounds like he's something of a role model to you, Craig. Is it fair to say, JDM? Um, I don't know about a, a role model. I mean, it, I, I like his work ethic where basically he, you know, he would sit and just crank out the stories yes. on, on the on the, the centennial of his of his birth. I was going to, in 2016. My New Year's resolution was trying to read all of the non Travis McGee books because I yes. read all 26 of the Travis McGee books and. Uh, I couldn't do it. There were too many of them, like <laughs> right. 70, 70 books. He was the one who, um, and I tell the story in the, in, in, in the, in the book that, uh, you know, I grew up reading uh, detective stories because that's something my family does. I, you know, my grandfather loved Perry Mason. My mom read everything Agatha Christie wrote. I read, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes and, and uh, Philip Marlowe, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. And when I was 14, my great aunt took a big drag on her. Paul Mall went, I think you're ready for Travis McGee now and <laughs> and handed me a copy of The Deep Blue Goodbye. And reading his books was the first time I sort of had this inkling that, number one, there were shady things going on in this sunny place we call Florida. And, <laughs> and number two, that some of the places I valued, you know, going camping and canoeing as a Boy Scout or going hunting with my dad were at risk and were at danger from some of these sort of shady people. So. Uh, it yes. was a it was a real education for me. I am so glad 
that you told the story about that great aunt dragging <laughs> on her Paul Malls. I love that story, Craig. And I, I was surprised to read that that um, essay and and find myself in there. You didn't name yes. me. You didn't name <laughs> me, but you have a friend who grew up loving John D. McDonald and reading his novels. And the point you were making about me was that my grandfather, Ovid Barnett, and my father, Rusty Barnett, also read those novels and I read them. And we didn't agree on a lot as I was growing up, but uh, John D. McDonald and Travis McGee was something that we could agree on. And it was mm-hmm. a great point of connection. And I think that there are many like you, many multi-generational fans of, of his work. So yeah. I'm really, really happy to start with John D. McDonald. But I have to ask, um, given this strange name you just told us, what is the Fufu Festival? Uh, it's an annual arts festival that they have in, in Pensacola to celebrate, uh, you know, all the different ways people create. And so in addition to uh, doing a presentation about my book, which, by the way, my parents came to and that was that really put <laughs> pressure on. Um, but <laughs> right. I announced I announced right at the beginning, I said, if there's anything you don't like, it's their fault. Um, um, but I also had to teach a class in 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 how to how to write funny stuff about Florida. Oh my! And I know, and I was like, "Well, all I have to say is read the paper." I mean, how how do I fill up a whole class with that? You know, I'm just going to say, just you know. Read when it. did you start thinking you wanted to be a writer and, and and recognize you had some some talent for it? When I was a kid, uh, I was an only child, and I had some friends in the neighborhood that I played with, but they it was a navy town, and so they moved away. You know, yeah. and, and anytime you'd make a friend in Pensacola, inevitably their parents were in the navy, and the way they go. So, um, so I had, I had a lot of adventures in the backyard all by myself or over at my grandmother's house and she had a forest behind her house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, uh, on rainy days and of which we have many in Florida, I would sit on the floor and draw out these adventures. And then I got to the point of being a lot more, you know, verbal and I wanted to write them, but, you know, writing by hand was very slow. And so my mom let me use her portable her old portable remington typewriter and so i would sit down and tap out these these stories about my various wild adventures uh most of them based on tv shows i'd seen and (laughs) and that's sort of where it started you know the book it includes 51 essays i couldn't believe when i saw the number but when you read it it does not read like 51 essays it really just i mean i'm kicking myself i didn't do one more so you could you could read one a week that would have been a great idea (laughs) and as i as i wrote in my endorsement that appears on the back it's a lot like reading mark twain but nonfiction. (laughs) so so i just wanted to ask in terms of the material how did you decide what to include among all the incredible stories that you've written over the years and how did you um how do you also decide to organize the state you're in some of them I knew right from the start that I wanted to do, uh, wanted to include uh, the what final were some essay. of those? Well, the final essay about Uncle Carlisle is one that I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to include this one and it's going to be the end. Uh, cause I don't think you can, I don't think you can top that one for an ending. Agreed. And then, uh, and, and also because that sort of makes the point of this is a, this is a, really a book about Florida stories and Florida storytelling. And he was a, he was a Florida storyteller. He was telling the story of things that our family had done. The piece about Arcadia and the history of the rodeo there, 
Yes. One that I definitely wanted to include. It's one of my favorites because it covers a whole century of Florida history. Uh, and some of it's pretty ugly, but some of it's also kind of amusing, too. I knew the mermaids were going to be in there, and I knew they'd be the, the opening. Oh, theme. absolutely. And and the readers love mermaids, don't they? I yes. see those of you who do not follow uh, Craig on, on Facebook and social media and other social media, I highly recommend it. He's got <laughs> such a fun social media presence on Facebook and on Twitter, which I think is at Craig Times. Yes. And I, I love to see people responding to your uh, to your mermaid stories. And have you <laughs> have you ever heard of any job anywhere in the world that topped that state government job we no. have on the books? No, isn't that great? <laughs> How much it material is. did you start with? You're talking about a weekly column and, and the newspaper stories, Flamingo magazine. I mean, I, I would imagine initially you're you're thousands. There's yeah, there was a well, you know, over 30 years. Yeah, there was a lot to choose from. Um, and and some of them I remembered really well and and thought, okay, I definitely want to include the ketchup murder in here. Right. Uh, that's you know, about the the panhandle radio host who'd had four attempts on his life and and bragged that he he could easily get it life insurance because nobody could kill him. You know, some stories like that. Uh others I had to kind of had to go back and look through um uh, and see. I mean, some of the some of the columns didn't really adapt well to, to mm -hmm. being a standalone and, and, uh, or, or being in a book uh, and others seem a little dated one, some of the more serious ones uh, that I want, I, I definitely want to include some of the court stuff. And that seemed like a good place to, you were asking about organization. I figured it would, it made sense to do, you know, a section on Florida men and Florida women, a section on wildlife, uh, a section on crime. And then one that's sort of a general, you know, yeah, the state you're in Florida uh, columns. And I didn't want to make it all columns, but I wanted I wanted to include some of them. I wanted to have a mix of short and long pieces. So there are, you know, really short pieces uh, and then some some longer pieces like the thing on the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Andrew. I thought that worked so well, Craig, and it's a lot it's a lot like writing an essay itself. Some of the basics we teach in writing classes that it's mm -hmm. nice to break up long sentences and short yes. sentences. And I thought that was the same in the state you're in, that it's really nice, refreshing read to go from something long to something a little bit shorter. One of the essays I especially loved was your chapter called called Don't Okahumpka My Weewahitchka, <laughs> because I, I love small Florida towns especially. Yes. So I wondered if you could talk about just some of the great Florida places in that essay. Sop Choppy is probably my favorite Florida place name, just because <laughs> it's, it's just such, such a fun thing to say. Uh, and I mentioned there, Two Egg has some family connection for me, because supposedly one of my ancestors is the one who named the town. Um, that he There's ran a town with. called Two Egg. Is that what you There's said? A town called Two Egg, and okay. it, it, it's it's known as the birthplace of Faye Dunaway. Believe oh my. it or not. Yes, um, not known for much else, but <laughs> that's it. Yes, his, uh, his ancestor who named Two Egg just started it all. <laughs> I can see it now. I can see where exactly where Craig Pittman came they, from. The story goes that he ran the little general store there, and because people were so poor. He accepted things in trade, like, you know, you could trade in a, a chicken and get, you know, and, and get, you know, shovel or whatever, a yeah. shovel or <laughs> a, dr a dress, a dress for your daughter, something like that. And he supposedly he once said, this town, so, <laughs> this town is 
is so down at the down in the dumps it's not even worth two eggs <laughs> so that's where they got the name <laughs> Craig your Craig your story has me thinking about date lines uh, yes. for, for the listeners who don't know what a dateline is that's when you're reading a newspaper story and it's the all caps place where the reporter went to report mm-hmm. the story and when I was working for Florida trend for many years I had this, I had my own bucket list there, and on yes. my bucket list was having a, a dateline from two egg, and I never got my <laughs> dateline from two egg. So I feel yeah. like I have to go back into <laughs> uh, go back into mainstream journalism to try to get a dateline <laughs> from two egg. But do you have do you have an absolute favorite dateline in Florida? But my favorite dateline in the book is on a levee in the Everglades. Which, oh, is, which is on which is on the the piece about the two women who run a dog grooming salon most of the week and then on the weekends go down to the Everglades and hunt pythons. Yes, um, that's a great piece. Great. Piece. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Probably my my all time favorite dateline, though, was um, over Tampa Bay because I, I was in an airplane that was flying over the bay with a biologist who was counting manatees. When you look back at that huge volume of material and, and reread all those things and, and take that trip down your own personal three-decade memory lane, what feeling did that create in you as you're, as you're looking back very much over your, your life? Uh, well, two things. One, thank God I had good editors. <laughs> <laughs> and and on several of them, man, I really wish I'd had more time to make make the writing better. Because I really, I really don't like going back and rereading my stuff because yeah, I always okay. see things. No, that no writer does. That's yeah. so painful. So yeah, painful. Very cringeworthy. Um, <laughs> and I mean, you could see a, in the early stuff on the environmental beat, you could see a real learning curve where I, there were some stories where I basically just sort of emptied my notebook over the computer. And put in everything because I didn't know what was important. And over the, you know, over time, I gradually learned to cut back on that and and to be more judicious, uh, and also to be more plain spoken in how I explain scientific stuff, things like that. That's a really interesting point, Craig. It reminds me of um, I once read Marjorie Stoneman Douglas talking about the fact that she had been too credulous. Um, about the Army Corps of, Corps of Engineers plans when she was working on River of Grass. She she wished that she hadn't been as bullish as she was yeah. on, on the plans. When you look back at your early environmental writing, do you ever see that you were too credulous or, or too gullible? Or, or were you always as sharp as you are today? Well, I don't know about sharp, but I, I was... <laughs> I was when I started out, I was very, I was very skeptical about climate change. Uh, oh, you know, interesting. Is, interesting. Yeah, bear in mind, this is 1998. Yep. And, you know, and it was not the big thing that it is now uh, in public discussion and not the accepted scientific reality that it is now. So that's my defense. But ultimately, I talked to a, a, a scientist who said, look, I was started out being skeptical, too. But yes, his job was monitoring temperatures around the world. He said, I can't deny it now and neither can you. And he convinced me that that was the, you know, that was the proper stance to take. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good point. I I feel that too, when I look back at my first book and see that I didn't even cover climate change (laughs) and now understand that, you know, that was the most important phenomenon facing us and, and facing water. Craig, being a good reporter myself, I consulted some people 
who know you better than Uh-oh. I do to <laughs> come up with the best <laughs> questions for you. Uh-huh. And one of one of my sources was your wife, Sherry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have a question that comes from her. Okay. And that is what foul, and I will say foul is spelled F-O-W-L, what foul attacked you when you were a little boy? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, this is not in the book. When I was a kid, my, my grandparents, um, specifically my grandfather, had a chicken coop behind their house. And um, I, I love to go visit my grandparents and I love to go out to the chicken coop with my grandfather to collect the eggs. It astonished my aunts who knew my grandfather as this very stern, forbidding man that his heart apparently melted whenever his grandson was around and he would <laughs> oh, put up with an awful lot of stuff from me that he wouldn't put up with from them when they were growing up. But uh, he got the idea one time to have a, to get a turkey and keep it in the chicken coop so they could have it for Thanksgiving dinner. And we went out and I thought it was a very cool thing to have a turkey out there, but I went out there with him to collect the eggs and um, the turkey, which was taller than I was, took an instant disliking to me and began chasing me around the chicken coop. And, uh, (laughs) and finally I managed to make my escape. Uh, This then became a long, much more elaborate, much more slapstick filled story from, for my kids at bedtime around Thanksgiving. Oh, I love it. I love it. (laughs) You know, you know, what's so great about that story, Craig, it's a true Florida man (laughs) experience (laughs) in your own family. And that's, that's funny because one of the questions on my list, which I may not need to ask you now is, whether you have like what is your quintessential Florida man oh. experience in oh, your own a, family? I have a better one than that. Oh, good. Um, what is it? When my <laughs> when my uh, I had grandparents in Santa Rosa County and grandparents in in Jackson County, and when my grandmother in Jackson County died, my my dad's mother, I was in college and came back came back for the funeral in Mariana. Uh, at the funeral home, I was surprised uh shocked uh probably shouldn't have been that the funeral homeowner had a lester maddox pickrick hanging over his uh the off the entrance to his office okay, um, what is that that's a that's the that's a uh handle for a for a pickaxe that lester maddox used to chase black people out of his restaurant My word. in georgia and so uh so clearly the the funeral homeowner signaling hey i'm a racist and i'm proud of it uh, and then um, on the way from the funeral to the to the cemetery, uh, my cousins, who were very clearly inebriated and both sporting very lovely mullets, because this was the late 70s, uh, got into a fist fight in the limo nice. <laughs> during the limo ride to the cemetery. So that's my that's my true Florida man experience right there. That is cousins brawl the- in limo on way to funeral service. Exactly. Yes. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. That's and because true. they were drunk, they weren't, you know, a lot of the hits were misses, you know, they were just <laughs> swinging wild. And I was kind of leaning back like, you know, don't involve me, guys. I'm <laughs> pretend I'm not here. Just pretend I'm not here. <laughs> Craig, you mentioned briefly Arcadia and the Rodeo in yes. uh, the essays you wrote for the book. I- explain a little bit more about that, because that, that's something I think most people, myself included, are, are utterly unfamiliar with. Hopefully a, a future podcast episode and when people read the book, they'll learn more. But give us a, a little bit more of sure. a taste of that. 
Um, well, uh, it, it actually, this goes to something we talked about in a previous podcast, that Florida used to be a big time cow country, uh, that we were an open range state until 1949, um, long after a lot of the Western states were. And Arcadia was sort of the center of the cattle industry in the you know 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, to the point where Frederick Remington came down to Florida to see Florida cowboys and landed in Arcadia in 1895 in the middle of a range war and was extremely, extremely unimpressed with Florida cowboys, who he described as low-browed cow folk who were constantly <laughs> shooting and stabbing each other over uh, cattle, he said, were not fit for a pointer dog to mess on. Uh, so Florida men, clearly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Arcadia has this annual rodeo. They call it the granddaddy of them all because it's the biggest rodeo in Florida to sort of revive the memories of that, their heyday as a, as a cow town. And so I used the rodeo um, as a sort of a frame to talk about the history of Arcadia and how, uh, you know, to, I brought in Frederick Remington and uh, the famous Florida cowboy Bone Mizell, who's sort of like our Paul Bunyan. He was in it. And, but also to talk about, uh, there was a, a murder case involving a, an illiterate fruit picker named James Richardson from Arcadia, who was charged with and convicted of killing his seven children. Ooh. Uh, and then it turned out he was, he was framed and they, he was, you know, after serving decades in prison, he was finally freed. So I was able to weave all of that in and uh, talk to some historians, uh, use that as a, to talk about race relations there. And uh, also the, there was a, this, this happened in the eighties when uh, Reagan was president that Arcadia was labeled by Reagan as the town without pity because of the way they treated these three brothers, the Ray brothers who had contracted AIDS through a transfusion. They were hemophiliacs mm -hmm. and uh, people shunned them and actually tried to burn them out of their house. And oh things my like gosh. That. All of that goes into that one story, uh, which uh, at the, at the time it, it ran in the, in the paper in the times and what they called the column one column one was a front page feature that was edited. They were edited uh, initially by a guy named Neville Green and then by a guy named Richard Bachman. And it was a chance for, uh, I was a lowly bureau reporter then, but it was a chance for us to kind of break out and do big front page stories. And so that was, that was one of my first ones to do this big piece on Arcadia wow. and Rodeo. And, and I will say something I love about this book, Craig, as well as Oh Florida, is that um, that deep humanity and sympathy that comes through, even though you, make fun of Florida man and Florida woman with the rest of us, you do have a, a great sense of the human condition and it really comes through in the pages. Is there like a, a quintessential Florida man story in this book is, or, or is that story out there somewhere else? Like what is the Florida man story? Well, you. I always say there is the the ultimate Florida man story has not run yet, has not appeared yet because we haven't quite hit the combination of uh, public nudity, uh, <laughs> uh, rogue alligator or python, uh, strange weaponry, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, drug overdose, uh, you know, all of these things combined. We haven't quite hit that combo that we would need. But <laughs> but if there was a Florida weirdness Hall of Fame, there are some stories I think would go in on the first ballot. My favorite one is one that I tell in O Florida about Kathy Willits uh, and her police officer husband 
who turned their home into a bordello. Oh, yes. That uh, was unforgettable. And and their defense attorney said it was actually uh, marriage therapy for them. Because, oh, my gosh. <laughs> because she was a nymphomaniac. Um, <laughs> and see, what I like about it is that story has lots of twists and turns that you don't see coming. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, the, the right. strange, just when you think it's as strange as it can get, it gets a little stranger. That's the hallmark of a good Florida story. By the way, um, it made me wonder, who is the most Florida man governor we've ever had? Like, I know we've had some Florida man governors, oh, yeah. but oh, yeah. who was the absolute most Florida man among our I'm, governors? I'm going to tell you the obvious choice, and then I'm going to tell you the real choice. The, okay. obvious, <laughs> the obvious choice is Sidney Katz, yes. who, who uh, had, not run for, had not run for a political office before he ran for governor. He was a minister from the panhandle. He uh, ran for governor because he found out that you could live in the governor's mansion for free. <laughs> and and on the stump, he wore uh, a pair of six guns, which he said he needed because he said the Catholic Church was sending hitmen to kill him because he was running as a prohibition party candidate. But that's that's all surface stuff. <laughs> the real Florida man governor, I'm convinced, is Fuller Warren. Fuller Warren, who if not the dumbest governor was in the top five dumb governors we've ever had, because when he ran for governor, he thought it was purely a ceremonial position. He didn't realize he had duties. And and so he gets elected and meets his, meets his predecessor in office. And his predecessor says, Oh, by the way, the state's broke. Well, good luck. Bye. (laughs) And And then he's like, Oh, what wait what and had made a deal with some real shady characters so that he wound up getting subpoenaed to testify by the kafaver commission investigating organized crime everything he touched blew up in his face when in order to deal with the with the state being broke he tried to impose a tax that violated his campaign promises so he got in trouble for that all of his appointees wound up getting charged with various crimes and misdemeanors um and he, this is the part that really puts him over the top for everybody else, though. He actually wrote a book while he was governor called How to Win in Politics. <laughs> and it actually, it said, you know, whenever you talk, you should speak very loudly and gesticulate wildly. That'll solve it. Uh-huh. That'll solve it all. Yeah. And and don't just call your opponent a mean person. Call him a, a horrible, vituperous monster or something, you know, use big words, too. He never won another election after that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's classic. That's classic. Well, I have to say, I guess we wish some of these governors would have taken it as a ceremonial only <laughs> yeah, position, right? right? <laughs> Is there anywhere in Florida or a, a Florida experience you haven't had that you'd still like to, Craig? Oh, yeah. No, I have a I have a whole Florida bucket list. And that's one of the pieces in, in the book is about that, that I, you know, I still want to go camping in the Dry Tortugas. Spend oh, the night yeah. there. I, I think that'd be marvelous. Cynthia, you're not going to believe this. I still have not visited the Devil's Mill Hopper. That's on oh my, my list. Oh my gosh! Come <laughs> next time you come come up. I know. I'll take you. That'll be so fun. Can't believe yeah. you haven't been there. I know. Yet, I know. Craig, I I do love the penultimate essay in the book, the Florida Bucket List. That was a, <laughs> really a wonderful essay, and I love all the things you have done and the things you have not done. And I, I really loved the little postscript there that said you finally got to see a, a ghost orchid in bloom yes. that had yes. been on your bucket list for a long time. 
you hadn't seen one even after writing the orchid book. Is that right? Right, right. Because the orchid book wasn't about the goat. Wasn't about the right. So could you tell us what that felt like to finally um, see the ghost orchid? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, Yeah. no, it was great. It was it was the it was the same trip where I went python hunting with the two ladies from from the dog grooming salon. On the way uh, back, I convinced the photographers, "Hey, we should stop at Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary." which Audubon uh, owns and, and operates. Uh, everybody knows, every, everybody, a lot of people know that the Fakahatchee Strand State Preserve Park has ghost orchids in it because that's featured in the book, The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean and the movie adaptation. But I had heard that Corkscrew had a, a ghost orchid you could access pretty easily. You just walk a mile down the boardwalk and look to your left and there it is about 500 yards off the boardwalk, way up high in a, in a cypress tree. I persuaded them to stop. We went down the boardwalk. We looked and sure enough, there it was. And this is actually, they call it the super ghost orchid because it doesn't just put out one bloom. It puts out five or six at a time over the course of the summer and blooms for months. It's incredible. It's, it, it it was, it was a, it was a thrill. It really was a thrill to finally see this thing because it, and knowing the history behind the ghost orchid and, and the story of the, the orchid thief and also the story of Carlisle Lure, who's founded uh selby botanical gardens that that was the orchid that was like his gateway drug for orchids mm. <laughs> right i remember <laughs> yeah doc, dr lure was a a prominent physician in sarasota and somebody showed him a ghost orchid and it blew his mind and he immediately became an orchid nut and 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 then he started collecting orchids and then started going out in the wild and photographing florida's wild orchids and produced the first book showing where all Florida's wild orchids were and what they look like. And so knowing all that, knowing all that history just really made it an even more potent experience. And I'm really glad we managed to get out there and, and then it didn't rain while we were there. We kept hearing thunder in the background. We're like, and then we saw a flash of lightning. Like, okay, we should probably go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that gateway drug. That was like young Craig getting that typewriter, man. Mm-hmm. That was, <laughs> so let me, let me, but before we close, I want to make sure to take a serious turn and ask you about the state of journalism, because as you write in the introduction, you were laid off from the Tampa Bay times in spring 2020 after this incredible 40 year career in journalism. You and I both have so many talented colleagues who have lost yeah. reporting jobs as newspapers contract mm-hmm. Could you talk a little about what's happening to local journalism and what impact it's, it's having on our communities in Florida? And, and also, if you think we'll see a, a return, you know, a resurgence uh, or restoration of journalism in the future. It was seeing what's been going on really breaks my heart that their newspapers, which I think are so vital for informing the public about what's going on in their in their backyard, in their community are really, really struggling these days. And uh, a lot of the people who ought to be supporting them are not sympathetic because they've gotten poisoned by the idea of all news is fake, which is yes, just crazy. My own paper, The Times, you know, in the year that I've been gone from the paper, I don't recognize a lot of the bylines now. The people, a lot of the, the other folks who were there when I were there, when I was there have yes. left good, promising, smart, young journalists. Many of them have said, I can't make a living doing journalism, I'm going to have to go do something completely different. And so they have not only left the paper, they have left journalism entirely so they can live, which is just, it's, it's just sad. You, you ask if there'll be a resurgence. Good Lord, I hope so. Um, 
I'm hopeful because there are organizations like the one I now write for, the Florida Phoenix, that provide free online news uh, and are supported through other methods besides selling ads and and so forth and, you know, subscriptions. I'm such a big fan of Florida news, Florida newspapers. We actually use some of our stimulus money and subscribe to six or seven Florida newspapers just to try and, you know, keep them going and and help them out. And, And also so I can kind of keep tabs on what's going on around my my favorite state. Excellent. That, uh, Craig, that is the single best use of stimulus money that I've heard. <laughs> I, I love that story. Well, I'll, I'll add uh, that I that I have some optimism about the survival of journalism. Just seeing the students who, who come through my journalism classes at the University of Florida, and I'll tell you, many of them come in um, hoping to be Craig Pittman someday. So that's, that's just wonderful to see. Those those poor kids. I hope you disabuse them of that. (laughs) I will wrap up mine with uh, addressing your storytelling. Obviously you're a journalist, you're a reporter, you're a writer, but you are a great storyteller. What advice would you you give people who want to improve their own storytelling? Be that verbal, be that written. How do you do it? Um, You, you, Follow the folks who are known as good storytellers and and uh, study their techniques, study their tactics. Uh, I just mentioned, you, we mentioned the Orchid book just a minute ago, my book, The Sin of Scandal. Um, I purposely changed my writing style for that book to make it more like a, a murder mystery and made the sh- sentences shorter, had little, little uh, cliffhanger endings for each chapter mm-hmm. to kind of get people to go on. And so... You know, if you study the techniques of, of people who are good at it, you'll learn from them and, and you know, apply them to, to the stuff you do as well. For me, I grew up in a storytelling household. I always like to say my, my mom taught me to appreciate a good book because she's the one that got me my first library card and provided me with books, you know. Uh, but my dad taught me to appreciate a good story because we go, we go out hunting and we meet up with his hunting buddies. And oh, my God, the, mm-hmm. the lion that went on. <laughs> but it was it was always hilarious and it was it's funny long afterward the things that we remembered were not the things that happened on the hunt but the stories that were told about it afterwards and that, that kind of impressed me so chad i've just got to ask one more question sure. yep. based on what he just said uh craig's description of how he wrote the orchid book remind um when when he's talking about being in journalism school in, in Alabama, he was thinking about this longtime dream he had to be a novelist. And so I wanted yeah. to ask, <laughs> do you have a novel in your drawer? Is is that dream still inside? And, and might we see your name on, uh, on a John D. McDonald type novel? <laughs> I have written a novel. I wrote it in 2017. And so far, not one single publisher has been the least bit interested in it. So okay, all of we'll you publishers, <laughs> all, of, all of you publishers out there, do you do you hear the travesty that no one has picked up Craig Pittman's novel? Let's let's get that changed. Well, I think you know, let that be a lesson. The idea of writing a book is wonderful. Doing so was one of the most arduous, off-putting experiences of my life, and and part of that is because about five people read the book I wrote and spent hours on. But it's a very and you both know this. Writing books is hard. Getting them published is harder. Finding anyone to read them is harder still. You know, there are so many books in the world, but for anyone listening, don't uh, don't confuse yourself. 
<laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. And, and, and I no. doubt either of you would, would recommend that as a way to try and earn a living. No, definitely. Keep your day job. That's, that's a good piece of advice. <laughs> but I will say uh, Craig Pittman does make it look easy. And, you know, these these books are just are just wonderful additions to to Florida. And Craig, I I appreciate you so much. And again, I want to congratulate you on this one being number six. Uh, you. you you hit the half dozen, and it's a it's a wonderful read. I hope your listeners enjoyed me turning the tables on you, and I <laughs> hope that they will order this book right away and and read it. Thanks for another terrific book, Craig. Thanks for having me as a guest today. Yeah, the book is <laughs> called "The State You're In." Of course, the author is Craig Pittman. You can find that preferably at your local bookstore around Florida, wherever you may happen to live, but everywhere online as well. Congrats, Craig, and uh, we'll catch Thanks. up next week. What else from the book, Cynthia? You've got a copy in your hand as uh, we're here on Zoom. What were some of the other anecdotes that that stuck out most to you? I know there was one about death row that we didn't have a chance to ask ask Craig about, and we, we both wanted to. Yes, that was that was an extraordinary essay, and I was particularly interested in that because I had witnessed, when I was a young journalist, I had witnessed four electrocutions in Florida's wow. electric chair, which was called Old Sparky, nicknamed Old Sparky. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, typical, typical Craig, right? I mean, he was able to uh, write that es- essay with a lot of, um, you know, humanity. He picks up all the quirkiness and the, yeah. and the craziness of Florida, but he, he comes at it with a deep humanity that I really, really appreciate. So I, I will admit to sometimes getting frustrated with the Florida man trope, um, but I think someone, I think, I think Craig is someone who has who has handled it well and mm-hmm. who is able to see, you know, the other the other facets of this complicated state. We. Call I- Florida. I agree. And if Craig were a one trick pony, the Florida man thing gets old after a while. It's funny uh, in doses, but Craig is a pitcher with a lot of pitches and he can give you the empathy. He's done the crime reporting. He's done the environmental stuff. He is exceedingly humorous and can be exceedingly serious. And I think that's, you know, what makes him a good writer as well. This versatility in that, you know, when you start reading a Craig Pittman column, article, whatever it happens to be, you know, we're going to be talking about Florida in some way, shape or form, but how exactly we get there and and what specifically it's going to be about, you have no idea. And, you know, I think through this book and pouring through this long career of reporting and journalism and storytelling, it, it really comes out how versatile he is in the stories he's able to tell and how he's able to tell them. Totally, totally agree. And I'll also say, I think we're really lucky that he has a special interest in the environment because, you know, uh, wildlife needs Craig Pittman, nature needs Craig Pittman, Florida's last remaining wild spaces need that kind of scrutiny. So I, I really, Especially appreciate his environmental reporting, and I and I have for many years, and I'm just so happy to see that he's still at it, and that he has found a, a home for his column at the Florida Phoenix, and that he keeps cranking out these books. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>